from the Teaching and Learning Collaborative at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab podcast, where we dive deep into the art and science of teaching and learning. We are coming to you live from the studio here at the Wentworth Internet Radio Experience on Wentworth's beautiful campus in the historic Fenway neighborhood of Boston. And it's my great pleasure to welcome back my teaching and learning collaborative colleague, Dr. Megan Hamilton-Giebert, to the podcast. Megan, it's great to be back in the studio with you. Howdy, Josh. It is fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. We also have the honor of speaking with Dr. Jen Casas, the Dean of Students here at Wentworth. Jen has been a leader in shaping the student experience here at Wentworth for over a decade. Jen, welcome to the CoLab. Thank you for having me. We're going to discuss the seven principles for good practice in undergraduate education, an absolute classic by Arthur Chickering and Zelda Gamson, which they created in 1987 by doing a massive meta-analysis of decades of educational research and boiling down their findings into seven principles which have stood the test of time because they're flexible enough to be applicable in a variety of institutional and historical contexts. Because even as the higher ed landscape changes, the fundamental things still apply. I'd like to give a shout out to the legendary Dr. Tom Tobin, friend of this podcast and our guest on episode 11, for reminding us of the many ways in which Chickering and Gamson's work resonates today and can help us find our footing in a changing world. I'll introduce each of the seven principles, and I'm looking forward to hearing Megan and Jen's perspectives on these best practices and their thoughts on how we bring them to life here at Wentworth. Let's jump into the first principle, encourage contact between students and faculty. Megan, why is this a best practice in higher education? Well, Josh, in a shameless plug for some of our other efforts in the Teaching and Learning Collaborative, I'm reminded of Relationship Education, a book that we're reading, Guilt-Free Book Club, and the findings in there really emphasize how the power of relationships have the ability to help students through school and to the graduation finish line. And that may seem like an intuitive observation, but there's so much power in just the ability of making a connection, establishing contact between instructors and students, and the measurable success outcome difference that can have, especially for students who are traditionally underrepresented on college campuses or maybe new to a college campus environment where the power of a single relationship or a contact with an instructor can make all the difference in the ability to come back. That's fantastic. Jen, how do we make our educational experiences relationship rich here at Wentworth? Well, I think the academic experience is really the bedrock of higher education. So the student-faculty relationship is the most important piece of that. And I think we're very fortunate here at Wentworth being specifically career-focused and having our faculty who are experts in their field as well as educators is a really unique opportunity for our students to engage with them, not only about the curriculum, but about the profession itself. So I think that we have a really valuable opportunity here as it relates to the faculty and student experience. I feel the one piece when I speak to students is that they really value and respect the knowledge their faculty have and they really look at them as content experts in that respect. So I think it's very prevalent here at Wentworth in terms of that relationship. 
That's great to hear. And I couldn't agree more with what you said. It's been my experience, too, that our faculty are really committed to student success and to really getting to know students and supporting them, not only here at Wentworth, but as they move into their careers. Because as you mentioned, a lot of our faculty have experience and contacts within the industries that they come from and work in. And this, those contacts really help our students succeed in the future as well. Other things to, to bring out of the book that we were talking about, Relationship Education by Peter Felton and Leah Lambert, there was this great study that showed that when a faculty member was able to meet with each of their students for even just 10 to 15 minutes at some point in the semester, ideally on the early end, it paid incredible dividends throughout the semester in terms of that instructor presence and that feeling of a student feeling supported and seen and they were able to reach out to that faculty whenever they needed to. And even just a smaller intervention in a bigger class where you couldn't necessarily do that, knowing students by name, maybe it's just using name tense. Just studies show that people having name tense allowed people to feel seen just responding to their name rather than just having a hand up. So there's just these small things that we can do to boost students feeling connected to their instructors, to the institutions. And at the end of the day, it's all about motivation. Having students feel belonging makes them feel motivated to show up and persevere when they feel like someone who truly cares about them is in the room with them, like a professor in that mentoring role. And also transitioning to our next principle of Chickering and Gamson's seven principles, college students are at a developmental stage where what their peers think of them is hugely important. So let's move on to that second principle, which is develop reciprocity and cooperation among students. So we know that deep and lasting learning is most often collaborative and social rather than competitive and isolated. So Megan, what's your take on how we develop reciprocity and cooperation among students and the importance of doing so? So the direction my mind's taking this in is there are actually three types of interaction that occur in a classroom. There's the instructor to student interaction. There is the content to student interactions and how students are responding to the topics and activities. And then there is student to student interaction. And you really need all three of those to be able to learn effectively in any classroom environment. And related to the magic of student-student interaction is you have varying ability levels and familiarity levels among students who can problem solve difficult topics together using their array of experiences and perspectives. And that is often a little more helpful than the instructor-student interaction, because the instructor is an expert. It can be very hard as an instructor to remember what it's like to not understand to the same extent. It's hard to remember what it was like to be a beginner in that topic. And so that's where the magic of student-to-student interaction comes in to help establish a learning community. Jen, what's your take on this? When I'm asked what my favorite event is on campus, my answer is always senior capstones. I just really enjoy the fact that we get to walk around Tansy or wherever it is and just watch the end result of the hard work that our students do as seniors. And I think the part of the senior capstone that speaks to this principle is the collaborative effort that the students have. You see students amongst different majors working together on a topic, and then the excitement that they have in that space to present that topic is really exciting. That's why it really is one of my favorite aspects of the year, because you just get to see that collaborative work that they do. And they're all so excited to not only present their own material, but then go to each other's presentations and 
um, see the great work and the innovation that's happening. So that's really, for me, the best example of this collaborative work. And we really have a great opportunity with the majors we have to see how they all intersect. You know, if you're going to be an interior designer, what is the impact in the relationship with an architect and vice versa? And seeing that now as an undergrad so they can translate that into their professional work. It's pretty exciting to be able to see that happen. It really is, and I've been at some of those events, and the sense of community and mutual support and excitement for each other's projects is really palpable. And that doesn't just happen on its own. That gets built intentionally throughout the undergraduate experience, and instructors can really structure that into their individual courses. We saw that a lot in the pandemic when people were teaching over Zoom. There was just a, a lack of that collective effervescence, to quote Emile Durkheim, and people were just kind of alienated, separated from one another. And this type of thing that happens in classrooms can happen more intentionally when faculty focus on building community in your classes at the beginning and throughout the semester. And listen back to our last episode, episode 12, about the, the power of play to build relational safety and feelings of belonging that pay incredible dividends so that allow students to go deeper, more quickly in, in their learning. And to structure in those opportunities for collaboration, peer instruction, group projects, discussions, both inside the classroom and in asynchronous formats like in Brightspace or whatever LMS you're using. So this goes into our third principle, Chickering and Ganson's third principle, which is about classroom practice, and that is to encourage active learning. So we know that learning is not a spectator sport, right? The most active people in any given room are the ones who are doing the most learning. So of course we know we got to do more than just lecture. And Wetworth is intentionally a very hands-on school. So Jen, tell us a little bit more about how we encourage active learning in the Wentworth classroom. A lot of it comes back even to the last principle about the collaborative experiences that our students have in terms of working on projects together. We pride ourselves on our hands-on experience and I think there's no more of an active learning experience than actually digging into something and being in a lecture and hearing about how something happens and then being in a lab and actually doing. That connection is extremely valuable. I think active learning goes for me, especially someone who's focused on student affairs, outside of the classroom in their club involvement and the other things that they're doing on campus to just be an active member of your community and really capitalize on all the opportunities that exist because all of it is a learning opportunity that's going to help our students later. So it's really great to see all of that hands-on experience and what our students are able to do connecting their lectures to their labs. Definitely. Megan, give us your two cents on active learning. Two cents on active learning, Josh. I feel like I need a quarter every time we say active learning <laughs> on this podcast because it is so essential to students being able to construct knowledge and work towards understanding in cognitively active ways. I'm glad Jen's here to kind of lend the perspective on what happens outside of the classroom as well in terms of how classroom principles are translated into practice. My focus tends to be on what happens in the classroom and how can we get students more active there. I will say as meaningful as it is and as you know, much of a higher return on investment active learning practices have in the classroom, Sometimes they are a tough sell, right? Because sometimes as a student, you just want to come in and watch a professor perform, right? And make the professor do all the work, and I will sit here quietly and nod and pretend that I understand. So when you challenge students to approach the classroom differently of, no, if you're here, you're going to be building knowledge, you're going to be contributing in this way, getting that buy-in from those students to do that, that can be a hurdle that instructors overcome, but it really is worth it for the sake of better learning outcomes overall. 
Definitely. And having that transparency is really important as well. I know a professor I work with a lot here, Michael Mosley, who was featured in our 11th episode with Accelerate, the entrepreneurship initiative here on campus. He said that when he started doing active learning more in his classroom, students were a little resistant. They were like, hey, we're paying you the big bucks to teach us. Why are you making us do all this stuff? And he was like, listen, the most active people in this room are the ones doing the most learning. So do you want that to be me or do you want that to be you? And they're like, oh, okay, I could start to see that. So the more he was able to be transparent about why he was doing what he was doing, the students were able to buy into that and get that uh, experience. So we know from constructivism, this theory of how we learn, that students and human beings have to make what they learn part of themselves. They have to integrate it into their own worldviews and make meaning out of it actively in order for it to last. And so active learning is a really important way to do that. And the next principle is a way to reinforce that. So Chickering and Gamson's fourth principle is to give prompt feedback for faculty and, and other folks whose students are working with to give them prompt, actionable, meaningful feedback on what they've done. So why is that so important? Jen? I think prompt feedback is super important both in and out of the classroom. I think that the more we're able to have conversations with students, and even this applies to employees, in real time, the more apt they're able to change behaviors. I think if we are waiting to share feedback, it's only a disservice in their ability to rethink their decisions up until that point. So when it comes to grades, you know, if you don't know how you're doing, how are you supposed to then adjust your study habits? And outside of the classroom, if you're working in a club or working on a project and you're not getting feedback from your peers or from your advisor in terms of what's happening with the club, how do you make adjustments? So we do a disservice to each other in general if we don't provide feedback in real time. And it's always tough because we think of feedback as negative and not feedback as constructive and as a way that we want to support each other. So that's a kind of a mindset shift as well as thinking of I'm receiving this feedback in order to do better at what I'm doing. Absolutely. Megan, why do you see giving prompt feedback as essential to the process of teaching and learning? A big part of learning is failure and lessons learned from those failures. Getting feedback after trying and potentially failing at something in some way is so essential for informing what you need to do differently in order to succeed on it next time. If we're serious about Failure as being a growth opportunity and the, you know, a way to learn and to ultimately result in success. You need feedback as part of that process. And to Jen's point, though, about people's experiences with feedback being negative ties to that aspect of that fear of failure. One way to overcome that is consider your feedback model of approach. And one framework that I find helpful is, I got this from previous university I worked at, but we recommended instructors gave specific, constructive, and substantive feedback tailored to the individual's work in that moment. Not as a reflection of that individual, but as an evaluation of the work, not the person. Something in that vein that I've heard about essay feedback is that you don't necessarily want to give feedback on every single thing they could do differently in the essay, but pick a certain specific lens to look through. Today I'm going to give feedback on this area, about grammar, about tone, about argument, whatever it is, and then that way students can focus on that one thing and work on that one thing and improve that thing rather than being overwhelmed by it. And as you said, students need safe spaces to try, fail, receive feedback, and try again in a supportive context. So one way to do that is to separate grading from feedback. 
So you can, of course, have many drafts that are ungraded or iterations of a project that are ungraded. And also you can give feedback as a different thing than the grade. And you can even have the grade be mutually agreed upon by a self-evaluation or a conference or peer evaluation as well. A, a whole bunch of people kind of giving their opinions and their reasons for it. And so that it's more of a collaborative decision rather than a judgment from on high. Because at the end of the day, it's all about metacognition. When we know what we know and what we don't know, we're able to focus on where we need to go. And when we're not sure of that, it gets a little bit murky and muddy. So students really need chances to reflect on what they've learned, where they still need to grow, how to build that skill of how to assess themselves and then determine where to go next. Oh, one comment too related to that is the power of retakes as well. I think often instructors may approach something as a one and done assessment of this is your only chance to prove what you know, better get it right. And those sorts of high stakes environments really don't show up as much as we think they do. In the real world, there are opportunities for trying again retakes based on the knowledge that you've amassed from the previous attempts. And I see that in the workplace and I see that in video games. Why can't that be in our classroom? Definitely. And you mentioned the stakes, the stakes being really high. And maybe that's not something we need to do. Oftentimes we have this idea of like, oh, midterm and final. But what if there were a lot more low stakes assessments throughout the semester that gave students a chance to practice, to try, um, and especially at the beginning of the semester, build in something where students can succeed and build that feeling of self-efficacy so that when they do get confronted with something that's harder, they have a little bit of confidence in their ability to move forward. Jen, do you have anything you want to add on the role of feedback in the classroom? No, I think just echoing this idea of resiliency, that's probably the piece that we see the most. No one wants to fail, but I think that we have to reframe the mindset that failure is a learning opportunity and not a determinant in kind of what you're trying to do. So I really echo that idea of resiliency and grit. You're pretty hard pressed to go through your entire life without something going wrong. So how do we early on be able to learn the skills to be able to learn from that and bounce back? I think it's really important. Exactly. And that goes back into the idea of a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And if we're able to empower our students with growth mindsets, then they can face whatever challenges they're going to face in the undergraduate setting and beyond with a lot more strength and, as you said, resiliency. So let's move on to our fifth principle, which is to emphasize time on task. Megan, what's your take on this? My first take on this is, well, that's a little bit vague, but what I hear in it are two things. One, the idea of transparency. It's important for us to focus on this task. Why? What's the value of it? What's the purpose of it? Why are we doing this today? And that can establish some buy-in from students to actually engage with you on that specific task. The other thing, I see clear similarity to active learning in this, of using the classroom as that space for active learning for time on task, being essential to students progressing in their understanding of topics. Definitely. How about you, Jen? When I think about time on task, I think about the oddity of the fact that for the most part, our students go through their K-12 education in such a structured and strict way from the bell tells them when to switch classes. They are able to look at their grades constantly and there's so much direction to then we say, okay, in two months, you're gonna start college and your classes are going to be sporadic throughout the day and you're going to have three hour time blocks where you are going to have to figure out how you're going to utilize that time and you may not have any classes on friday and we expect this ease and transition from one structure to another 
And really trying to stress, especially to our incoming students, that everyone's ability to make that transition is different. But the earlier that you can begin to understand how to manage your time and how to utilize the open and the, the empty slots in your schedule to the best of your ability to kind of focus on your classwork, the better off you'll be. So I always find it very fascinating that for so many years, they're just, this is the structure. And it's at this point, I wake my kids up for school to make sure that they are dressed in on the bus. And now we have students who are expected to get themselves up and get themselves going and just a snap of a finger. And it's a very interesting thought that we just think this switch is going to turn off and on in the matter of just a summer between high school and college. So I think time on task is a learned skill. And I think the more that we can support our students in figuring out what works best for them is the best we can do for them in terms of their academics. And institutions of higher learning are realizing that they need to put effort into this initiative of supporting student success with their executive functioning skills, with how they manage time, with how they figure out how to adult, as it were, and succeed in this new independent chapter of their lives. So what are some of the services that Wentworth has has come up with to kind of wrap around and support students here on campus? You know, it's a great question. When we speak with our students at orientation and other opportunities, I like to say to them that the interesting thing about a college environment is that every single office and resource that is here was put here on purpose. And the purpose of that is to support student success. So whether that be the success studio to help you manage academics and your academic advising or looking at our Center for Wellness to help you manage your own well-being and mental health, every single resource that is available to you is here for the specific reason of your success and helping you get from, you know, what I like to say is their orientation seat to their graduation seat. And knowing that everyone's path there is very different. So there's a lot of opportunity of support on campus. I think that for a lot of our students, it's just understanding how to utilize those supports and to recognize when it's time for them to utilize those supports, which is what we really try to do through all of our engagement with our students. Definitely. And this makes me think of our episode, our interview with Dr. Sandra McGuire, who wrote Teach Students How to Learn. Because if we know that learning happens in the minds of the learners, right, it can't just be poured in, they're not empty vessels, then the more support we can give students in order to figure out how they learn best, how to learn best, the better off they're going to be, not only in our classrooms, but in the rest of their lives. So the Success Studio here at Wentworth is a great example of that, and all of these other ways that faculty can use that knowledge of learning happens in the minds of the learners. So how can I set up my learners to best succeed in my discipline, in my industry, in in what they have to do in my classroom? And that goes back to Megan's point about transparency and being explicit about why it is you are doing what you're doing, what it is that they need to do, and also those safe spaces to try fail, receive feedback, and try again. And this helps us transition into our sixth best practice, our sixth principle, which is to communicate high expectations. So of course, communicating high expectations can come from faculty to students, it can come from students to each other in groups, and it can come from the other adults that students interact with on campus. Megan, what do you see as the importance of communicating high expectations? Well, for me, Josh, what pops into my head is the stereotypical tough first day of class where you have a very stern instructor saying, look to your left, look to your right, one of three of you will not pass this class. And how that basically just gives two-thirds of the class an excuse to not try hard. And I think instead you could try to curate high expectations in terms of 
everyone in this classroom has the ability to succeed and has the ability to achieve and to pass this class. And I have high expectations. Together, we will get there. I think that the power of just believing in the students in the room is really, really overcoming the barrier that might occur in terms of students doubting themselves or doubting their own abilities. Nice. How about you, Jen? No, I mean, I think what Megan just said, particularly about that idea of, you know, self-confidence, you know, our students at any college that a student attends, they have to remember they got into that school for a reason. And the reason is because the university felt that they had the skills and the knowledge to be successful. So I think sometimes, you know, we can also get into our own heads about our abilities, which can be really, really difficult. Again, it comes back to this idea of resilience. But I do think setting realistic expectations is important for our students, for them to be able to manage their time appropriately and also expect the best out of themselves in terms of the work they're doing is is really helpful to them in the long term. But I do, I think that expectations are important. And we think of it not only in the classroom, but from the student affairs lens, we think about it in the respect of expectations of what it means to be a member of a community. That you're coming to Wentworth and being a part of a community of 4,000 plus other people. And what does that mean in terms of our own responsibilities as it relates to interacting with our peers and interacting with others? And kind of looking at this community at Wentworth as just being a smaller version of what the experience is outside of these walls and what it means to just be a good neighbor and a a good person to other people. Absolutely. And those types of conversations don't have to be limited to just res life or, you know, athletics or, uh, you know, arts endeavor that people are doing together. It can be in classes, especially collaboration heavy courses, maybe lab courses where people are going to be really working together a lot. You might consider a structure at the beginning, like a group contract or a full value contract. Or There's a ton of, of structures like that where students get to articulate their own high expectations for themselves and each other. And then you can just refer back to that group agreement and you know ask students to reflect on that. And that way they'll have a lot more ownership over it. It's, it's so interesting with this communicate high expectations because it sounds almost like magic, but there are de- decades and decades of, of research showing that expectations really do function as self-fulfilling prophecies. Both high and low expectations on the part of instructors will often lead to very much statistically significant increases or decreases in student outcomes. And in order for that to work, you as the instructor have to believe it. You have to believe that everyone really can succeed. It's not enough to just kind of give it lip service. Although that's helpful, (laughs) but if you really do believe it, and you know, that is why we've admitted everyone to our institutions, then a lot of times that will come true. And especially with that relationship rich approach to education, even when there are barriers, you'll find your way around them and through them together. So this goes into our last principle, our seventh principle, which is to respect diverse talents and diverse ways of learning. Megan, tell us how we do that here. Sure. So first of all, I see that in Wentworth's structure with our strategic pillar of inclusive excellence, with inclusive excellence being a value that we have both elevated, but also made a foundation of how we approach things as a university. That helps us set up our classrooms as spaces for diverse thoughts and diverse views for difficult conversations from which everybody will learn. I also see that as a learning designer from the perspective of creating multiple ways for people to learn, universal design for learning practices come to light here for me uh, because we know that students process information differently. We have auditory processors, we have students who 
write in order to study. We have students who may need to watch a demo video with or without captions on. Uh, but the more multiple means of representation you can provide, the more learners you're going to reach, the more barriers to learning you're going to break down. I'm so glad you brought up universal design for learning, and our listeners are definitely encouraged to listen back to our episode seven to take a deep dive into how providing multiple means of instruction and multiple pathways to mastery can really enliven the learning experience for students. Jen, how else do we respect diverse talents and ways of learning here on campus? I have the opportunity outside of my role here at Wentworth to also teach in a master's program for individuals who actually wanna go into student affairs. And one of the things that we talk about in my course is this idea of exposure and that colleges are this great place to be able to expose students to new ideas and to critical thinking. And that it also is a safer place to do that in terms of what we provide when it comes to programmings and opportunities and offices and and other people and and topics and such. So I think that we need to definitely be capitalizing on that idea that we need to be exposing our students and ourselves to new and different ideas. We need to encourage our students to be critical thinkers in the work that they are doing. So I think college is a really great place to think about diversity and think about diverse talent, to think about the fact that each of us comes to the table with our own experiences and what are the value add of those experiences to what we're trying to accomplish, whether it be in the classroom or in a club or in our residence halls. So I think that diversity and belonging are are vital to a college environment. People have to be open to listen to other people's viewpoints and then be able to critically think about those viewpoints and then make decisions on, on how they will um, act or behave or think or what their values are. So both in and out of the classroom, this is really one of the key things in terms of that kind of idea of being college educated. And what does that look like? Definitely. And faculty have a key role in exposing students to new ideas And also, going back to this idea of diversity, of exposing students to new ideas from a range of perspectives and a range of people of different identities, especially so that they can see themselves, students can see themselves in the work, in the profession. You know, if if you're going into construction and you're one of few women, if you, in in class, see images of women construction folks, uh, hear case studies of women construction folks, all of a sudden you're able to see yourself in that work a lot more than if you just stick with the textbook from 50 years ago, which doesn't even mention the possibility. So it's important for faculty to look at their materials, make sure they're representing a diverse range of folks that mirror their student population in some way, and also uh, those diverse learning preferences and just teaching and learning activities in the classroom. So we know that you know students are going to respond differently to different activities. So having a variety of ways for students to engage with the content and with the learning with each other on their own, group work, case studies, role plays, hands-on activities, everything under the sun, each one of those is going to reach a different student in a different way and spark learning in a different way. So the more the better, and hence the respecting of diverse talents and diverse ways of learning. So let's look back over the seven principles for good practice in undergraduate education. I'll read them and then let's see if we have any final thoughts on them. So the first is to encourage contact between students and faculty, then develop reciprocity and cooperation among students, then encourage active learning, also give prompt feedback, emphasize time on task, communicate high expectations, and respect diverse talents and ways of learning. Any thoughts as we wrap up this conversation? Well, as great as these were in 1987, 
glad that they are still just as great. And I can see a through line with, you've, you've heard us plugging a lot of our other previous podcast episodes in this recording, but that's not without reason. That's because the guidance in those other principles and practices you mentioned showed up in this seminal work. So Chickering and Gamson had, you know, they, they really developed a time-proof set of principles here to, to approach, to guide our learners because they are rooted in how we learn neurologically, how we learn socially, how we learn emotionally. Definitely. And Megan and I tend to focus more on classroom practices. And I love that, Jen, you're bringing the perspective of student affairs to the table. So how do you see these principles coming to life on Wentworth's campus more broadly beyond the classroom? Yeah, it's so interesting because I had not heard of these principles up until, you know, the invitation to join this conversation. But Chickering has his seven vectors, which I know very well because those are, are widely taught in the role of student affairs. And it's interesting to talk about those because they are also so very relevant today. So obviously, you know, Chickering's a pretty smart person, but they have been able to theorize a lot about what's still relevant. Um, But I think for me, it always comes down to the fact that, as you said earlier, Josh, you know, colleges are about belonging and connection. And when individuals feel like they belong and they're a part of something, they're more able to be authentic in who they are. They're more able to self-advocate and they're happy and they're retained more and we are able to get them to that goal, which is their college degree. So I think it's just so important that we are always marrying the, the classroom experience with the outside of the classroom experience and supporting our students as to where they're at. And I think that's something that, you know, regardless of the theory you're looking at, that when you have a 4,000 student population, you have 4,000 different students and being able to be intentional and really purposeful in your interactions with each student, I think benefits their own growth, development, and their success. Definitely. Jen, can you give us a quick take on those seven vectors? (laughs) Oh, gosh. I mean, I teach a whole three-hour class about it. But it's really talking about self-identity, that as we move through the vectors and are able to be comfortable and learn more about ourselves, we are more authentically living exterior than who we are, who we feel we are on the inside. We're more authentic about that person on the outside. And by the time an individual leaves college, the goal is that they've really determined who they are as a person. And through kind of what we offer in the college experience and what they're exposed to, as we kind of talked about with diversity, that they really figure out who they are as a person and how they authentically want to live as that person. Nice. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I'm going to be X when I grow up and stay with it for 40 years. It can just be the essence of who you are and some of those skills of authentically relating and being curious. Because I think that if you're genuinely curious about the world, you can always learn something new, build a new skill, you know, take what you already have done and take a turn and, you know, find your path going forward. So that's a big through line for this whole show is curiosity. So Jen, could you tell me about the role that curiosity has played in your life? I think professionally, you know, I am in a field where with each year that passes, I am older, much older than my students that I work with. So I think I always have to be really curious about, you know, what is the student of 2023? What are they interested in? What makes them thrive? So always really being curious about what does the student experience look like and how in my role can I be helping us get there through, you know, my sphere of influence as it relates to the work that I do. So I think that's what keeps me curious professionally. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? 
So the Division of Student Affairs, our vision is Every Student Thrives. And we selected that vision after many, many, many hours of conversation. And the reason for that is because each student's goal and journey is very different. And for one student, thriving could mean the dean's list every semester they're here or scoring that co-op that they've always wanted. But for another student, thriving could be getting to class as they manage you know, responsibilities at home or passing the class that allows them to kind of move on. So I think that's the piece that kind of going back to this idea of individualized experiences for each of our students is that by communicating with our students and being really intentional, we can understand how do they thrive and what does thriving look like for them? And are there barriers in place that are preventing them from getting there? And as a university, what is our responsibility and our ability to remove some of those barriers to allow them? Because, you know, we're seeing a lot more happening with our students. We're seeing a lot more insecurity as it relates to food and housing and financial insecurity. We're seeing an increase in mental health diagnosis. All those things are very real for our students. And if we are going to invite them here to be students, then how do we how do we work with them on whatever it is that they're bringing with them to help them be successful and help them thrive? If there's an easy way to summarize it, I picked this up recently in some article or another, but the two things that students really need to persist at a university are one meaningful thing to do each week and someone who believes in them on campus. And so what something I see in all seven of those principles is the power to be that professor who believes in a student to help them persist. No, I think this has been a great conversation and I, I appreciate the opportunity to hear about the principles because I think it's something that I would like to bring back to my group as well to think about, you know, student affairs, we're educators too, um, in a very different way, you know, we're not lecturing or giving homework, but we are educators. So how do we think about our role as it relates to the principles as well? So I appreciate the new theory to look at from the lens of the work that we do. I love this notion that everyone who works at a university is an educator, whether you're interfacing with students directly or you're in the classroom or you're in some other element of the university, it's all part of the teaching and learning experience. Megan and Jen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Of course, anytime, Josh. <laughs> and special thanks to our sound engineer, Gabe Satanko, a senior here at Wentworth majoring in computer engineering. I'm Josh Luckins, instructional designer and host of the CoLab Podcast, a production of the instructional design team at the Teaching and Learning Collaborative here at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks so much for joining us, and as always, stay curious. Who's your favorite Zelda, man? Obviously, it's Princess Zelda, but I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably our outtake. Anyway. Um... <laughs>